passage, if you would. Let us go to the book of Matthew. And I've entitled this, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Now, there's a good theme right after talking about the golden compass, isn't it? <laughs> Repent. Now, for those of you that are here as guests this morning, let me tell you what I'm doing. We started some uh, months ago with the book of Genesis, and we are going Sunday by Sunday with, with an occasional interruption uh, of, of maybe some special service. But basically, for months now, we've taken one book per Sunday, and, and I preached through the entire book on that one Sunday. So it's basically a journey through the Bible. Now, of course, using common sense, you understand that it would be very difficult, like the book of Matthew, which is some 28 chapters long. There's no way I can cover everything. I mean, it's full of the parables of Jesus, the miracles of Jesus, the birth of Jesus, the life of Jesus, the ministry of Jesus, the death of Jesus, the crucifixion of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, the Great Commission, uh, an, an indication of His ascension. Uh, I mean, you know, there's no way that I can cover all of that, even though I just did. There's no way. And so what I'm going to do is, like I have been doing with all of the books, is to give you a historical context, an understanding of the times in which it was written, then give you an outline of it, and then hit some of the major themes and major points of it with an emphasis, you know, to your heart and to your soul, if the Holy Spirit allows me to do that. I believe that the Lord gave me this message. Brother Greg and I were talking just last week, and, and he's, in fact, even this morning, he said something about, well, did you get Matthew complete? I said, yeah. He said, I know it was hard work. And what he meant by that was, is how do you take a gospel? And, there, and then what he said was, he said, well, if you mess it up, don't worry, you got three more. You know, because I mean, because I mean, how do you take the gospel and, and, and whittle it down to 40 minutes and say, here's the, the message of, of the gospel of Matthew? Well, anyway, I'm going to try to do that this morning. So y'all hang in there with me. If I leave out something that's really a part, your favorite part of Matthew, please don't be too harsh with me and just understand that we're trying to give this overview. Now, I said that for the sake of the guests. For our home folks, most of you have been here through the entire series and, and uh, some of you have had to miss for sickness or vacations or whatever, and I understand that. By the way, some of you have asked, yes, I do believe you can get CDs of these messages. Can you not, Brother, Brother John, through the sound ministry? Is there a sign-up sheet in the foyer? Okay, so you might want to consider that and or see Brother John and the folks in the sound booth and you can get copies of these. We don't have them on our website right now. You do not need a password to get to the sermon page anymore. I put the password on there for another reason years ago. I removed the password just this weekend. But there's only like eight or nine or ten just generic sermons. They're good sermons. Brother Greg, some of his are on there, some of mine are on there. But they're not these series. The reason is, is I've got so much video on our site right now. And, and I'm trying to save some space. Uh, so we will change those sermons out from time to time. Uh, but I don't know, people have asked me, is your whole Through the Bible series on there? No, it's not on the website, but you can get it here through the church, okay? All right. Well, anyway, here we are with the Gospel of Matthew. You know, last time we were together, I did a message on Between the Testaments. I hope most of you were here for that because it will really help you to understand as we get into the New Testament the flavor of it. They're under the Roman Empire. The synagogues are in full operation now. There are two big political slash religious parties, the, the, the Sadducees and the Pharisees. There are also the Hellenists and there are also the Herodians. Those are the people that are rallying around King Herod, who's really a Jewish puppet king. So there's all kind of political and religious schisms and divisions among the people. They hate Rome because of how Rome was able to conquer them when they were simply trying to help Rome and ask for Rome's help. All of these things come into play. And then, of course, this is when God steps in, fulfills the prophecies of the coming of the Christ, of Him putting on flesh Himself. And we open the pages of the New Testament uh, in the beginning of the first century, of course, in Roman times. Rome is thoroughly in control and the Christ 
is born. What a wonderful coincidence that at Christmas we wind up in the Gospels. Isn't that wonderful? I didn't plan it that way, didn't even think about it when I started, but see, God has his hand in this whole series, does he not? All right, Matthew, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. There's a reason I have that. That is the theme of it. That is one of the first declarations that Jesus makes to the crowds as he begins his public ministry as is recorded by the Gospel of Matthew. Turn the page if you would. This is the Roman world. This is the Roman world. Is it my eyes or are these bulbs getting weak? Is it, is it my eyes? Somebody talk to me, please. Okay, the bulbs are getting weaker, I think. Yeah, I think so. Maybe we can look into that. But anyway, uh, uh, it just doesn't seem to be quite as bright as it should. But anyway, uh, this is the Roman world. Of course, you can see the boot of, of Italy there. And the red circle there is the approximation of Rome. Down here in the right corner, in fact, let me see, do I have to? Yes, I do. Thank you, John. You gave me that. Let's see if that works. Yes! And there, right in that area, of course, would be the land of Israel. But of course, it's not an independent uh, land right now. It's uh, under the control of Rome. It hasn't been independent since the Babylonian days, 500 years prior to that, when Nebuchadnezzar conquered them. But remember, after the Babylonians, of course, they came under Persian control, and then they came under Greek control for hundreds of years. And now they're under Roman control, and here the gospel opens. This entire land is the land of the New Testament. Of course, the gospel would be born here, but then through the church, and particularly through the missionary journeys of Paul, it would spread all up and through here and even around in here. And so the, most of the entire populated Roman world would be impacted by the gospel of Jesus Christ within the first century. Okay, Turn the page if you would. All right, here's the land of Palestine, or uh, and I call it Palestine, but the Romans named it Palestine in 70 A.D. It is the Latin word for Philistine, the land of the Philistines. The Romans did that to anger the Jews, and of course it's stuck ever since, and people to this day still call it Palestine. It's really the land of Israel, God's land, but it's okay to refer to it as Palestine because that's how it's been known for several thousand years because the Romans owned it and controlled it there at the very last. But this is the land of Israel, or Palestine, Palestine in New Testament days. Here is the city of Nazareth where Jesus, uh, of course, was uh, uh, conceived. Here is the city of Jerusalem, of course, the epicenter of the whole place. There is the city of Bethlehem, very close. Of course, this is Galilee, and this is the Dead Sea, and then this blue line underneath it is the little blue line from the map, but you could barely see it. This would be the Jordan River area. And so there is the land of the New Testament. Most of you have maps in the back of your Bible, so you can kind of look at those maps as we go through and preach through the New Testament. Okay? Turn the page if you would. All right, here's an outline of the entire New Testament. Now, I'm going to show this probably every time and maybe even add some things to it. There are so many ways you could do this, and those of you that have been students of the Word for a long time, perhaps you have a better way that you would like to outline it. I've done it very generally here, just as the Old Testament is divided into sections and there's a reason for the way it's lined out, the New Testament is as well. As you see, of course, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John represent the four Gospels. Now, I'll talk to you more about this later, but Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the synoptic Gospels because they are very similar, tell basically the same story, and include a lot of the same material. Yes, they probably borrowed from each other. Of course, some of these guys knew each other. Uh, you know, John is a little different. John was written many, many years later, uh, probably in the 80s or 90s A.D., with a whole other purpose. His purpose was... Well, I'll get to it when we get to the Gospel of John. I don't take up too much time. But anyway, all four, basically, the Gospels, they are the story of Jesus' life, His ministry, His death, His resurrection, and the fact that He is God with us, uh, the fact that He is the Messiah. 
So it is the story of, of that. It's wonderful that we have four because they come from four slightly different perspectives written to four slightly different audiences. And so we get kind of the whole picture uh, when you read all four. You could get a very good understanding by just reading one of the Gospels, but in my humble opinion, I think God did it just right. Isn't it good that God has my approval for the way he put the Bible together? And um, he does have my approval. I think he did a wonderful job by putting the four Gospels together like that. All right, now after the four Gospels comes the book, well, you can't see that one, <laughs> comes the book of Acts, of course. Uh, that's the, uh, the uh, of course, there are many ways to describe the book of Acts, but for the outline purpose, I just described it as the, as the birth of the church is represented there, and then, of course, and then all the missionary journeys of Paul. Out of the book of Acts, we get a whole lot of understanding about other books. For example, when we come to the book of Romans, well, you know, you can read about Paul's uh, uh, missionary desires to be to, to, to the church of Rome. You can read about that in Acts. When you come to the book of Ephesians, you can go to the book of Acts, and there's a whole section of when he was in Ephesus. When you go to the books of Thessalonians, you can go to the book of Acts and there's a whole section of when he was in Thessalonica. And the same with Colossians and on and on and on. So the book of Acts really is very crucial to the, Old, to the New Testament. It's like a bridge between the Gospels and everything else that's there. If you didn't have the book of Acts, the, Old, the New Testament, in my humble opinion, would, would suffer greatly. Um, I would hate to lose any of the books of the New Testament, but literally that would be the last book I would want to lose because it explains so much of what happened in the early church, how it was born, how the gospel spread, um, what all the other letters mean and the context of all the other letters. So it's very important. All right, and then the next section, Romans through uh, Philemon, I just have that whole section titled The Letters of Paul. Now you can divide those letters down into the pastoral letters, you know, to, to Timothy and to Titus. Those were young pastors he wrote to, the personal letter he wrote to Philemon. There are what's called prison letters. A couple of those letters he wrote while he was in prison at Rome, and so they're called the prison epistles, which is the Latin word for letters. Uh, so, but I just took all of them, beginning with Romans, ending with Philemon, and just call those the letters of Paul. Okay? Now, the, the, way the reason they're in the order they are in your New Testament is very, very complex. They're in that order from longest to shortest. <laughs> I was kidding, it's not that complex. From longest to shortest, the book of Romans is the longest letter he wrote, etc. Okay, now the next book, the book of Hebrews, a very fascinating book. There's more Old Testament scripture and Old Testament understanding and Old Testament explanation in the book of Hebrews than any other book. We really don't know who the author is. Some people think it's the Apostle Paul. I'd lean a little more towards that. Brother Greg and others have very good reasons for believing it's not the Apostle Paul, and he leans towards other authors, and we've taught on this on Sunday nights. It doesn't really matter. It is an awesome, awesome book. I can't wait to preach it because it proves from the Old Testament Scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. It was written to who? Hebrews, Jews, okay? So it's a tremendous book. We'll talk about that when we get to it. All right, and then the next letters, James and, you know, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, 1st, 2nd Peter, you know, Jude, those are letters that I call the circular letters to the church. What that means is, doesn't mean they talk in circles. It means that when they were written, see, for example, the book of Ephesians was written to go specifically to the church at Ephesus. Now, it eventually became a circular letter in that it eventually became a part of the whole New Testament documents and was read by all the churches, just like we're reading it and studying it now. But 
these letters that I call the circular letters, probably there's evidence to show that they probably were sent to groups of churches from the very beginning and or meant to be read in all the churches from the very beginning. So they were circulated among all the churches. That was their purpose from the beginning. Uh, some people dispute that, but anyway, that's how I've divided it out. And then the last book, the book of Revelation. Any of you have ever heard me preach the book of <laughs> Do we ever talk about Revelation much in here? Of course, for our guest, I did spend about a year and a half and we preached through the entire book of Revelation as we have several other books. But that, of course, is John's vision of the end times. That's how I have the New Testament outline. Now, I'm not going to go through this lengthy explanation every Sunday, but I'll probably put this outline up here every Sunday and just let you refer to it for your notes and for the sake of guests and, and, and new folks. All right, turn the page if you would. Well, so the Gospel of Matthew, it was written, of course, by a, a guy named Matthew. Uh, his name was Levi. That was his given name, uh, but he's also called Matthew. He was a tax collector by trade. Um, he was one of the 12. Now, his name Matthew means the gift of God. I don't know that you would call a tax collector the gift of God. I know that even today I would not describe a tax collector as a gift of God. So probably his given name was Levi. Probably some believe that Jesus changed his name, gave him the name of Matthew, the gift of God, just like he changed Peter's name. So it could very well be that Matthew was given this name by our Lord himself. We don't know that for sure. That's just a good educated guess on my part. But the scriptures refer to him as Levi and or Matthew. Now, I say he's one of the twelve. This is interesting. Please know this. A lot of you know this, and some of you are newer to the word, and you don't know this, so this will be important. A lot of times I'll ask people in kind of a quizzical way, name at least four of the original twelve disciples. Invariably, people will say, well, that's easy. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. <laughs> wrong. Matthew was one of the twelve. John was one of the twelve. Mark and Luke were not. Mark was one of his disciples probably, but you know, when I say disciples, there was a group that followed Jesus everywhere. And sometimes that group was in the hundreds, sometimes it was just scores of people, but he had an inner twelve. Okay, The inner twelve, Matthew was a part of that. So was John. So was Judas. So was Peter. So were others. But Mark was one of the outer core disciples more than likely. Luke would come along much later. We read about Luke in the book of Acts. He was a doctor and a historian and historian and uh, he was probably one of, he was one of Paul's, uh, he accompanied Paul on his missionary journeys. And when you read the book of Luke, you can understand, I mean, I really appreciate the book of Luke because this guy says right in the beginning, he says, look, I've researched this, I've talked to eyewitnesses, I've dug up everything I can dig up on the life of Jesus, and I've put together an historically accurate account of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. And then when you read through the end of the book of Luke and you start in the book of Acts, which John's after Luke, but if you go to the book of Acts, you realize the same dude that wrote Luke wrote Acts. Well, Luke wrote the book of Luke and Acts. If you put those two books together, you have a continuing story starting at the birth of Jesus. One of the most beautiful birth stories of Jesus we know is in Luke chapter 2. And you read right on through to the birth of the church in the book of Acts and right on through to some of Paul's very last days of his life. Now, it doesn't record the death of Paul, but it's right up to that. It ends with Paul in prison at Rome. So you have this, if you take Luke and Acts, other than, of course, Revelation, which is truly unto itself, you basically have the entire New Testament message in this work of Luke and Acts. Pretty fascinating, huh? All right, so anyway, Matthew's one of the 12. Luke was not. 
Mark was not. Now, that doesn't take away from the veracity of their writings. Mark and Luke uh, are very valuable to the church and to the New Testament. But anyway, Matthew was. Now, tradition tells us that Matthew lived and taught in Palestine for about 15 years after the crucifixion. And then he began to travel as a missionary. Okay, and uh, first to Ethiopia, then to Macedonia. He went to Syria and he went to Persia. Uh, finally, he died, and we don't really know e either Ethiopia or Macedonia. Some of the heaviest tradition points to Ethiopia. Um, the date of the writing of the gospel is disputed among scholars. We weren't there. We don't know exactly, but by measuring it against other known facts, probably around 45 or 50 A.D., some give it a little later date than that. But if it was anywhere between 45 and 70 A.D.-ish, uh, you can understand that it was in the lifetime of the first-generation eyewitnesses. So there was plenty of time for people to dispute what Matthew wrote, and we have no writings or disputing coming out of that time period uh, about that in, in, for any of the Gospels, as a matter of fact. So it's pretty powerful stuff. All right? So it probably, a lot of scholars believe, it's probably been written in Hebrew at first. Matthew's very Jewish. In fact, the book of Matthew is very Jewish. Remember, all the first Christians were Jews for at least months, probably, it's my estimation from the way I read the scriptures, for years and maybe even the first 10 years, the church was primarily Jewish. It wasn't until the stoning of Stephen and the missionary journeys of Paul that it became really, really outreaching to the Gentiles. Prior to that, it was all Jewish. So the Gospel of Matthew, being one of the earliest, Mark was probably the earliest, being one of the earliest, was written to the church, which was thoroughly Jewish, and so it would use a lot of Jewish terms, a lot of Jewish understanding, a lot of Jewish understanding of Old Testament scriptures proving that Jesus is the Christ. Is everybody still with me? I hadn't put anybody to sleep, have I? Okay, good deal. That's why I'm screaming at you. Make sure you're awake. <laughs> Turn the page if you would. All right. The sevenfold outline. Yay, not five, nor eight, but the sevenfold outline of Matthew. Well, there are many ways you could outline it. I did not give it seven points to be cute. It really outlined that way in my heart and my soul. As I've read it many, many times, this is the best way I can chunk it down. Uh, chapters 1 and 2 is the introduction to the king and the fulfillment of prophecy. See, the Old Testament closes with the final words of Malachi saying, We're looking for the king. Suddenly the Lord whom you seek will come to his temple, but who will be able to stand the day of his coming? That's, based, that's some of the last words of Malachi. Matthew opens up with, and the virgin will be with child, and she will give birth to a son, and his name we will, will be called Emmanuel, meaning God is now with us. Everybody got that? So the book of Matthew opens right up with the coming of the king, the birth announcement, and the fulfillment of the prophecies that he is the one. The first two chapters deal with that immensely. And then chapter 3, right on through chapter 4, verse 16, talks about Jesus' personal preparation for ministry, his baptism, his temptation in the wilderness, all of that. But then chapter 4, verse 17, you see I have that in red, chapter 4, verse 17, uh, through chapter 16, there's this big chunk, his ministry to Israel and the masses begins. Now, please don't be upset when I say his ministry to Israel. I know because you'd want to say, well, it's his ministry to the world. It's to everybody. Well, of course it is, and ultimately it would be. But he even tells his disciples, he said, I came first to the lost sheep of Israel. Okay? They were the ones who had the prophecies. They were the ones who had the prophets. They were the ones who had the word of God. They were the ones who had the promise of Abraham. They were the ones looking for the Messiah. The Gentiles weren't looking for a Messiah. 
So of course he came to the, to, the, to the Jews first, to Israel first. Paul makes a big deal of that in the book of Romans. Of course he did. And so a lot of his parables, a lot of his teaching, find their primary purpose in the heart of the nation of Israel in that day and time. Now, of course, the principles and precepts are very applicable to us now, and that's what good preaching should do, is to bring the Word of God alive to our hearts. But when he first spoke it, it was spoken to Israel for them to repent, the kingdom of God was there, the Messiah they waited on was here, and they better get their hearts and their heads right. And so that begins. Now, chapter 4, verse 17, yeah, I've got it in little red up there. You probably can't see it. But it says, in fact, you can look in your Bibles, what it says, from that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. So chapter 4, verse 17, kind of, is a you see, right up to that, it's all about the birth and the prophecy and then his preparation and, and, and his temptation, his red, and then verse 17 is a pivot point. And then it says, now after that happened, from that time on, he began to preach to the people, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. All right? So that goes through chapter 16. And then chapter 16, verse 21 is another uh, pivot point where it says, from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things. So from chapter 16 to chapter 20, roughly, is his ministry to his disciples. You'll see where he pulls his disciples off, his inner 12, and says, now let me explain these parables to you. Or let me tell you about the kingdom that's coming. Or let me tell you about I'm going to suffer and I'm going to die. Or let me tell you what's going to happen in Jerusalem. Now there are a few instances in these chapters where he's also speaking to crowds. You also find him confronting the Pharisees a lot because the Jews are getting really, the Pharisees are getting really aggravated with him at this point. But primarily this section is about him pulling his disciples off to the side and saying, listen, now I want to give you some of the secrets of, of what's going to happen and how you're going to plug into it when I'm gone. Okay? So, now after that opens chapter 21 and it opens with a triumphal entry. And the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, he comes into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey coming through the eastern gate. The people cut palm branches, put them down. This fulfills the prophecies of Zechariah. Behold, your king comes to you lowly riding on donkey. It fulfills the prophecy of Daniel. Do you all remember when I taught you the book of Daniel and that section where it says, from the issuing of a decree there will be 77s and so many sevens, and you know, before the Messiah will come to you. Do you all remember that? And I showed you how this, this dude, Sir... Uh, uh, Sir, Sir Edward, I can't remember his last name right now, mathematical genius and a theologian, he took the calendars and figured out from the, we know when that decree was issued to rebuild the, the temple, and he figured out how many days the 77s would be through the Jewish calendar and came to a specific day in history. He compared it to the calendar, and lo and behold, it was the exact day that Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey and the people said, I am, or said, He is the Messiah. And Daniel had prophesied prior to that, hundreds of years, 500 years before, the exact day, apparently, that the king would be presented to the people. And you can give the Lord a hand. You can give the Lord a hand. Now, for those of you that weren't in that... Uh, see, I'm trying to think if... I think that PowerPoint might be on our website. Our website is huge. I can't remember if it isn't. I need to put it on the website. I think it is on the website. I think it's on our website. Dig around in the information section. I think you'll find it if you've never seen that before. It is fascinating and almost indisputable. I mean, there have been a few people that have tried to, but the answers are there. And it seems like Daniel was speaking of that day. So, now, okay, after his triumphal entry, he goes right up to the temple. 
And he spends the last week of his life in and around the temple area confronting the Pharisees and then teaching to the crowds that are joining him in the temple. And this, thus fulfilling the prophecy of Malachi, suddenly the Lord whom you are seeking will come to his temple, but who will be able to stand in his presence? Okay? So, all right. Now, after chapter 26, verse 17 begins the Last Supper. Okay? And that's our first presentation of the Last Supper, of course, the Gospel of Matthew. And it goes right on through to going out the Garden of Gethsemane, the arrest, the trial, and the crucifixion, right on through chapter 28, and then, or the end of chapter 27. I, sh I didn't really do that right there in the outline. Then chapter 7 opens with chapter 28, which opens with his resurrection, and then, of course, closes with the Great Commission. And I'll be more specific about the Great Commission in just a moment. All right, does everybody have that outline? Everybody got it? Seven-fold outline. I think it outlines very neatly. Um, when I went to look for help for outlining it, I went to several commentaries and they all said, this is the most difficult book of the New Testament to outline. And, and it's because it's so long and it's this whole life of Jesus, you know. And so I said, well, forget the commentaries. Let me just look at it. And so I looked at it and I said, here it is. And, and I believe the, the Lord gave me that. And so that's what I came up with. So if you've got a different way of outlining it, fine. But to me, it was very easy to outline. And it, comes in, and, it, and it chunks into seven neat little chunks that really tell the whole story of the Gospel of Matthew. All right, turn the page if you would. Now, the 12 most prominent features of Matthew. I know some of you are saying, 12? <laughs> oh, gosh. At 20 minutes apiece. Let me see, 12 times 20. We'll be here to 4 o'clock this afternoon. No, I'm going to skim through them. Most of them I'm hoping that most of you are familiar with. And if you're not, you can go read the book of Matthew. It will take you a couple of hours probably to thoroughly read the book of Matthew. But I hope this week you will get completed if you've not already read it. I hope many of you are using my sermons to launch into your week of daily devotions by taking the book I've preached and go back through and studying them and using the notes. It'll help you a lot. Your understanding of scriptures will just blossom. All right? But the 12 most prominent features of Matthew. Turn the page if you would. We'll start with number one, the genealogy. Jesus came from the line of David through Joseph and Mary. And, and it really the genealogy in Matthew chapter 1 really emphasizes, of course, the lineage of Joseph. But we discover through other sources, of course, that, that Mary also comes through the lineage of David. And so, that you know, a lot of people come to the genealogy. How many of you went to the dinner theater and saw the genealogy song? Wasn't that awesome? Wasn't that awesome? We're going to have those kids probably do that again in one of our morning worship services coming up soon. Because they sang the whole genealogy, and it was comical and yet poignant at the end. It was really great. But anyway, the purpose of the genealogy, a lot of people come to genealogies in the scriptures and say, oh, why is boring stuff? Why is this? Here? Well, it's there for a purpose. God doesn't waste any words, and, and you know, it's there to prove something. And the genealogy of Matthew, the, old, the, the New Testament, doesn't begin with the birth of Jesus. It doesn't begin with a miracle. It doesn't begin with kingdom parables. It begins with a boring genealogy. But the genealogy's purpose is to prove that this man that they all knew in the flesh came from the line of David because they're already proclaiming he's the Christ because of his crucifixion and resurrection, but the Christ had to come through the line of David. Every Jew knew that. That was the promise of the Old Testament. So, of course, the book of Matthew opens by saying, let me prove to you this is who he is. Okay? So it proves his lineage coming through the line of King David. All right, click it if you will. 
All right, and then the second one, of course, the second most prominent feature is found in the first chapter, and I've already quoted it, that passage. It just starts in the first chapter. It says, Behold, the virgin will be with child. She'll give birth to a son. We will call him Emmanuel. And that translates, and it says in the book of Matthew, it says, Meaning God with us. For people who say that the Bible never claims that Jesus is God, they have not read the first 23 verses of Matthew. Because in the 23rd verse, first you go through the genealogy proving he's from the line of David. Then you get to the 23rd verse saying, not only that, but this is God who put on flesh and is now with us as the Old Testament promised. And that's how the New Testament opens, with the declaration that Jesus is God in the flesh. Everybody got that? All right, at Hickory Hammock, we preach, teach, believe, know, and understand that Jesus is God in the flesh. Amen? Amen. All right, just want to make that clear. All right. I got some stories to tell about that, and so does Pastor Greg. <laughs> Click it, if you will. Number three. And then, of course, another prominent feature of the book of Matthew is where you'll find the Sermon on the Mount. And then, of course, in the Sermon on the Mount are the Beatitudes. Okay, you remember that, uh, you know, blessed are they that mourn, blessed are the meek, blessed are, blessed are, blessed are, blessed are you when you're persecuted for righteousness sake, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, so that's a very prominent passage of scripture. Of course, chapters 5, 6, and 7 make up the whole Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount, by the way, was a sermon primarily to Israel. Now, of course, it, it ministers to us, and it means stuff to us, and it has relevance for us, but the context is Jesus is going right to the Jewish people, and he's saying, your king has come, the Messiah is here, and here is how you are to live in the kingdom. And here's what God really expects of you. It's not the 6,000 rules and regulations of the Pharisees. It's not a legalistic system of keeping rules and regulations. But rather it's a personal relationship, heart to heart, with the God that created you. And here's how it plays out. And then he preaches this sermon. Okay? The Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes. Turn the page if you will. Click it. Number four, of course, of course, this is where you'll find the Lord's Prayer. It's in the Gospel of Matthew, and it's in the Sermon on the Mount, and where he's teaching them how to pray. He says, when you pray, pray like this. He didn't say pray this prayer as a magical prayer. He says, pray something like this. Now, if you'll break that prayer down and outline it, and I've done this before, and I'm not going to do it this morning, you'll discover that there's a real purpose to this prayer. It starts by acknowledging Him as Father, and then it goes on to glorifying with Him. Then it, says, then it turns to us and says, now help me with this, Lord, and I want to glorify you here. I'll preach that some other time. But it's a beautiful prayer. It's the model prayer, and it's found in the Gospel of Matthew. Click it, if you will. Number five, chapter eight, the miracles begin. This is where a lot of people... See, if you took the miracles out of the New Testament... Very few historical scholars, and I'm not talking about you know, theologians, I'm talking about just people out there, the secular world, very few people would have a problem uh, with the New Testament documents. Because under all forms of literary critique, they are the most reliable of any of the ancient documents the world has in its possession, for many reasons, and I don't have time to go into it right now. Brother Greg taught thoroughly on that on Sunday nights. But they are the most reliable of any documents. I mean, even secular documents. We have more copies of them than 10 ancient pieces of literature put together. And it's amazing. But what gives people a problem is chapter 8 and following where Jesus opens the eyes of the blind, opens the ears of the deaf, causes the lame to walk, raises the dead. But see, all of these things, if you look at each miracle and examine them individually, and I've done this before, I won't do it this morning, but every one of them point to His deity and point to the fulfillment of prophecy 
and point to kingdom principles about living in the kingdom. They're, they're not just random miracles. It's not a magic show. He's not going around healing people to say, Ooh, look what I can do. You know, pass the chicken buckets. <laughs> and it wasn't the Benny Hinn show, y'all. <laughs> I know. And if you, if you like Benny Hinn and you're mad at me now, uh, uh, tough. And then so, anyway... <laughs> No kidding. I, you know, I, I, I'm not judging his salvation. That's between him and Jesus. But I, I think his uh, show is a, uh, a scam. Um, but anyway, we'll talk about that later. Um, but the miracles begin, and they're all designed to teach these things. Okay? Number six. Chapter 13 begins a series of seven kingdom parables. In fact, I think all seven of them are found in chapter 13, if my memory serves me correctly. There's the parable of the sower, the parable of the weeds, the parable of the mustard seed, the parable of the yeast, the parable of the hidden treasure, the parable of the pearl, the parable of, of the net. I don't know why I capitalized some and didn't capitalize others. That's my stupidity, but anyway, I'm sorry. Uh, but anyway, there's seven parables there that he tells. No, not eight. No, not six, but seven. <laughs> Seven kingdom parables. And then he reveals several of them immediately in the scriptures to his disciples and then to us. The others we can figure out if we know the rest of the scriptures. But they're designed to teach principles of living for the Lord and in the kingdom. All right? To turn the page if you would. All right? And then the seventh principle is, see how quickly we're going through these? The seventh principle is found, uh, excuse me, the seventh most prominent feature is found in Matthew chapter 16. And this is Peter's confession of Jesus as the Christ. And Jesus and the disciples there at, uh, at um, 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 hold it, hold it, hold it, Caesarea Philippi uh, up near Lake Galilee. And not Caesarea down on the coast, but Caesarea Philippi up at Lake Galilee. And they're there and they're probably sitting around a campfire, you know, and, and Jesus is talking to them. And he says, well, finally he gets around saying, who do men say that I am and of course some they, the disciples start answering him it's found there in the scriptures and they say well some say you're John the Baptist come back from the dead because John had his head cut off others say you're the prophet Elijah who has come back preparing the way for the Christ others say that you're a great prophet or the greatest teacher that Israel has ever seen and Jesus stopped them and I love this I love this next scene he says but who do you say that I am and Jesus Asked that question in Peter, and he, I don't know if it took Peter an hour to think of this or if he answered it immediately, but it says, Peter said to him, Oh, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Amen. And Jesus said, Blessed are you, Peter, for this revelation. This comes from God. He says some other things to him, but he basically says, He says, On this rock, on this understanding, on that confession, I will build my church. Okay? So see, the church isn't built on doing good things. It shouldn't be built on personalities of ministers or people in the church. The church, the church of born-again believers isn't built on who's got the prettiest building, or at least it shouldn't be. But the church, the real church, never doubt, is built upon the confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, making Him God with us the only way of salvation. Give the Lord a hand. That's how the church is built. That's how the church is built. So, If you're born again and you hold to that confession, then you're part of the church. And I don't mean Hicker Hammock. I mean the real church. See, this might surprise you, but I'm sure that there are people whose names are on the roll of Hicker Hammock who aren't saved. Now, that's none of y'all. Y'all are all saved because you're here this morning, right? I pronounce thee saved. I mean, but you know what I mean? I mean? We've got hundreds of people that come here and hundreds more on the church roll through the years. 
don't you imagine, statistically speaking, there's probably a handful, maybe a double handful, sadly maybe more than that, who aren't even born again? So how'd they get on the church? Well, I don't know, tradition, family, wanted a free grave site. Uh, you think I'm kidding. We have changed our policies 85 times in the 20 years I've been here to try to keep the hoodwinkers from joining our church so they can get a free grave site. I, I, I'm telling you. People, people are amazing. There are people's names on church rolls. And, of course, you know, churches say, we've got 16 million members. Yeah, but you probably only got half a million that are saved. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It's amazing. The kingdom is built. The church is built on a born-again relationship declaring Jesus is the Christ. He is the Christ. He's the only way of salvation. Okay. All paths don't lead to the same place. Okay. <laughs> Number eight. Chapter 17, another prominent feature is the transfiguration. This is when Jesus takes his inner three, he goes up to the top of a mountain, and there he is just transformed into this glorious presence of shining white, and a voice from heaven says, This is my Son, whom I'm well pleased. You know, Matthew records that Peter and James and John, they saw Moses and Elijah were on top of that mountain with Jesus. They saw them. They knew them. They recognized them. That's why I use this passage along with many others. When people say, but when I'm in heaven, will we recognize one another? I think so. Peter, James, and John had never met Moses and Elijah. Those guys lived thousands of years before, but when they were there, they knew who they were. And they weren't spirits floating around. They were people. They were real people in bodies. Now, they were glorified bodies. Never to die, never to have disease. And, and, and Jesus was glorified for, in front of them with them. But they knew who they were. They talked with them. They spoke with them. When Jesus came out of the grave alive, they knew who he was. He was in a body. He ate with them. There's got to be eating in heaven, y'all. There's got to be. I think it's going to be an endless buffet. You can eat what you want and you never get fat. What do you think? Huh? I mean, it's got to be. And they're going to have golf courses and Harley Davidson motorcycles. Got to be. Fishing holes full of fish and woods full of deer. I don't know, but anyway, I just, I digressed a little. Please forgive me. All right, number nine. I know some of you said, preach. All right, Matthew 9. All right, I mean, excuse me, uh, number, number nine. One of the, another one of the most prominent features is Matthew chapter 24. I've preached on this many times. I've got a couple DVDs on it. In fact, this sermon's so good, I'll probably make a DVD about it. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Say, that's the joke at Hickory Hammock. Is if I get excited about something, watch out. He's going to make a DVD about it. Uh, but anyway, I have made DVDs on this because this is where Jesus answers the question about, about the end of time. And he gives all kinds of hints as to when you'll know you're living in that age. And of course, in this section is this one verse. I love the whole thing. But one of the most prominent features stands out to me is where he says, and this gospel of the kingdom, he says, it will be preached in the whole world. And then the end will come. Well, folks, that's us. It's being done right now. We're the only generation to have ever lived on the face of the earth that has the technology and is actually doing it. The gospel it doesn't say that every man, woman, boy, and girl will hear. It says it's going to be preached in the whole world. And in the days when the gospel is being preached, in the, have you ever heard of cable television and satellite and mass communication, transportation, and cell phones and internet? Folks, it's being preached in the whole world. Jesus said in those days, that's when the end is coming. Very prominent feature of Matthew. All right, turn, uh, click it if you will. Number 10. And then, of course, Matthew chapter 26, beginning with verse 17, is the first presentation of the Lord's Supper and the Last Supper. It's often used by me and others when we have Lord's Supper to show that very first time. It's a very beautiful rendition and understanding of the Lord's Supper. My favorite rendition of the Lord's Supper is not often thought of by people, is 
the Gospel of John. There's about six chapters that encompass the inner details of what happened at the Lord's Supper. A lot of people don't know that. They read the Gospel of John, they don't realize about six of those chapters are about the intimate conversations that occurred at the Lord's Supper. We'll get to that when we get to the Gospel of John. All right, number 11. And that's chapter 27 through 28, which is the first account of the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. So that's a very prominent feature of the book of Matthew as well. And then, of course, chapter number 12, one of the most prominent features, at least by Baptist churches, <laughs> evangelical churches, is chapter 28, verse 18. It's known as the Great Commission. These are some of the last words Jesus says to His disciples before He ascends into heaven in their sight. Now the book of Acts, the opening of the book of Acts, records that ascension event in great detail. The book of Matthew doesn't, but it implies that that's what's getting ready to happen. And it records that Jesus' last words, and I'm paraphrasing, but He said, He says, now look, He says, Go ye therefore into all the world, Make disciples and baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. All right? So the command of Jesus was not. See, the disciples, the early church, I'm, I, they made a mistake in the first few months of their existence. The book of Acts records it. The book of Acts says that they met daily in the temple and they broke bread together every single day. You know what they were doing? They were waiting on Jesus to come back. Now the historians tell us that soon after that they realized that we got to do what he told us to do. Jesus didn't say go sit in the corner in the temple and, and wait for me to come. He says you go to all the nations now and you take this gospel and you take it to the ends of the earth and you baptize in the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit. You make disciples out of people. He said we got work to do. Well little did the disciples know we had 2,000 years of work to do. But I say that to you. Of course I believe we're living in the trumpet days. You know that. Of course I believe that times are getting short. But I also believe that I could be wrong. And I also believe that even if I'm right, it could, might not be in our lifetime. And historically speaking, that's not much time, but maybe just a few years after our lifetime. So the way I live my life is I don't sit in a corner and say, the sky's falling, it's all going to end. The way I live my life is we preach, we teach, we do missions, we do evangelism, we, 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 we do church, and we do life as though the world's going to be here for another 2,000 years. But every day we expect that seventh trumpet to blow and we look forward to it. Amen? Amen. So you can give the Lord a hand because, because I think the Great Commission is still the call to the church today, even though and even if we're living in the trumpet days, that we are to go and to make disciples, to preach and to teach, to baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and to make disciples throughout the world. Turn the page if you would. So the message of Matthew, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And the question to which Matthew demands an answer is, is Jesus now then therefore the king of your life?